0: So, the first thing I'd like to do tonight is to review the five hindrances, just in case they've gone away and you can't remember what they are. And if that should have happened, just in case they come back someday. And then uh, talk about both the approach of using concentration and then the approach of using mindfulness to work with these qualities of mind. So as I'm sure you remember, the first of the hindrances is grasping or desire or clinging. And we experience it in meditation practice often as being drawn away from our object of concentration, our object of interest, that which is most predominant in the present moment, by wanting. Suddenly we want something to be happening, or we think of an object that we don't yet have, that we decide we need, or we are filled with fear and craving about preserving something, keeping something that we already do have, an object, a person, an experience, keeping change from happening. So it's really like living at a right angle or an oblique angle to the way things actually are, to be swept up in desire. We lose touch with ourselves. We lose touch with what we might really care about more fundamentally. And our world becomes defined by what we want. So that when... Desire or craving or grasping becomes very strong in our minds. Other things, other events, other people are seen as competitive, as rivaling the acquisition, the attainment, and the keeping of that object. We don't like them. We want everything to just go away. Leave us alone so we can fixate on what it is that we want. It's so interesting, isn't it? The things we want and how fervently we want them. We become so incredibly infatuated or intoxicated with the idea of finally having. And so often we look back and we think, what was that about? <laughs> that seemed so important. But now that I haven't had it for a while or now that I have it and I see it more clearly, it might be nice enough, but <laughs> that huge kind of craving is like a world in and of itself that has very little to do with how much satisfaction that object is actually going to give us. So that's the world of wanting. That is the first hindrance. And the second is like the energetic opposite of that, which is aversion. I know guy talked a lot about fear last night. That, that's considered like the imploding, held-in, frozen form of anger anger being the expressive, outflowing, energized form of that same state, to strike out against what's happening, to want to separate from it, to declare it to be untrue, to not have it be so. And when we are lost in that, that state, we lose perspective it's almost like the the nature of that mind state of aversion when we are lost in it is that of tunnel vision it's like how many of us can think happily back to a time when we were very afraid for example and think oh I'm really afraid as though we were reliving it and then think well Things don't work out this way, maybe they'll work out that way. That's not what happens. We freeze. Everything stops. The truth of constant change disappears. We can't imagine options. Things don't work out this way, maybe they'll work out that way. And yet isn't that the actual truth of things? And so you can see the spiral from anger and fear to despair because we so lose touch with with that sense of perspective. I can remember uh, many years ago, Joseph and I were teaching a retreat on the big island of Hawaii. And I was sitting, leading the group in the sitting right after lunch, and... (coughs) The way the, um, the physical site was, we were in this place right near the ocean, right across the road from the ocean, uh, with many buildings. Um, the top floor of the buildings uh, we usually where people slept, except this one building. We were using the top floor as the meditation room. And right below it was the office for the whole compound. So sitting up there, leading the sitting, and I kept hearing the phone ringing downstairs. And I just had the thought, well, maybe something's wrong somewhere in the world. (laughs) So uh, when I ended the sitting, I went down to the office of of the facility and just waited by the phone. And sure enough, the phone rang again. And I picked it up, and this woman's voice said, the largest tidal wave in history is expected to hit the island, and you need to evacuate. And I said, well, <laughs> you know, we're right by the ocean, so that means the road we'd have to take is right by the ocean. There are 60 people here in two vehicles. I don't think we can evacuate. And she said, I'll call you back. <laughs> so, <laughs> I hung up the phone, and I thought, I'm going to go tell Joseph <laughs> what's going on. So I went over to the place where he was doing um, this group discussion and I waited in the back of the room for kind of a a natural break and uh, as I was waiting uh, there was a a meditator there describing in the most kind of doleful way um, his knee pain and how it was like ruining his meditation and ruining his life and it was so horrible and you know (laughs) It was so unbearable, and he hurt worse than anybody else had ever hurt in their lives. And I was sitting in the back of the room thinking, oh, boy, you think you have a problem now. (laughs) Wait till you hear what I have to tell you. But then, you know, I told Joseph, and I went back to the phone, and just to finish the story, um, you know, she told us, okay, don't evacuate, but go to the highest point. So we you know, rang the bell and told everybody and gathered up in the meditation room and just practiced. And in fact nothing happened. <laughs> like nothing. Um, but it was, it was a very powerful moment actually. You're just kind of going along thinking your worst problem in the world is your knee pain which you hate. And you're consumed by that aversion and that, that dislike and Uh, all of the attendant feelings, you know, I'm so bad, I have knee pain. And all of a sudden, your world shifts. It could be a completely different world. So the problem, or one problem, with that force of aversion is how much it makes us lose touch with that wider and more true perspective. The third hindrance is... A favorite, which is sloth and torpor, where we're just sluggish and dull, our mind feels unworkable, alertness vanishes, awareness vanishes. We feel like we're not connecting to anything, and we also don't care that we're not connecting to anything. It's a very sweet story from the time of the Buddha where one of his two chief disciples um, named Mahamogalana went off into the forest to meditate, and he was having a very sleepy day. And the Buddha, they say, through the force of his psychic power, noticed this from far away and appeared as a vision before Moggallana and said to him, Are you tired? Are you sleepy? Are you nodding? which I thought was very funny. Uh, you can imagine sitting in the forest and suddenly the Buddha appears having noticed that you're nodding out. And to which uh replied, oh yes, Lord Buddha, my mind feels like butter that's been left out in the cold for too long. <laughs> it's stiff and congealed. So that's the state of sloth and torpor. It's that kind of heaviness and stiffness and that sense of things being unworkable. You just do not have the energy. The fourth hindrance, again, is like the energetic opposite. It's restlessness, the mind jumping from one thing to another, being agitated and being scattered. Classically, when it's mental restlessness, not necessarily so much physical restlessness, but mental restlessness, restlessness we either zip off into the future, and we plan and plan and plan and plan, as though if we were to plan something enough, we would have that kind of feeling of assurance that it will work out just the way we want it to work. And when our minds zip off into the past, it's usually guilt or remorse, where we go over and over and over and over something that we said or we did, which was, was harmful or hurtful. And again, that kind of intense restlessness keeps us from seeing things in perspective, from being in the moment with our actual experience when we're swept up in it. then the last of the hindrances is the state of doubt where we can't settle. We compare, we think, we analyze, we ponder, we judge. But we can't actually allow our being to settle into something, to explore it in that kind of heartfelt, deep way To know something for ourselves. It is like that sense of being at a crossroads, being a traveler at a crossroads, and just not knowing where to go. And rather than taking one step and seeing what happens, we want to kind of know what's going to happen at the end of the road, so we don't go anywhere. We're stuck. It's defined, doubt is defined in the text as exhaustion of the mind that comes about through conjecture. Over and over and over again, spinning out, conjecturing. So here too, we may be looking for an answer, very sincerely looking for an answer, but we're very far away from walking a path to find that answer because we're so stuck. So, here are the five hindrances grasping, aversion, sleepiness or sloth, and torpor, restlessness, and doubt. Now, the other week, when Guy was talking about concentration, he also spoke about the five jhanic factors, which I'd like to go over again and talk about in relationship to these hindrances. We've talked so much about the role of mindfulness in working with them. To be able to see them for what they are, to acknowledge it, to name it. To name doubt as doubt is a very powerful thing. To have almost, almost a kind of a proper spatial relationship to them. Not being sucked in and spinning around and having them define our world but also not being full of fear and shame and uh, anger about their arising. To know that place which is mindfulness, which can hold or accompany whatever might arise with some balance, with some clear seeing. And then there are ways of working with the hindrances that have to do with these five jhanic factors, the five factors of concentration, however you develop the concentration, whether it's through actually doing a strict concentration practice or through the development of more moment-to-moment mindfulness. And moment-to-moment mindfulness probably won't really be moment-to-moment, but it is a practice where having lost touch with our moment's experience, we return as quickly as possible and as gracefully as possible, which makes the process of being mindful or the practice of being mindful more continuous than it was before. So whether we're doing a concentration practice like loving-kindness, for example, or we are practicing Basically, a mindfulness technique, as as we generally do here. The development of these five factors will happen. The first being what is called vitaka, or aiming the mind. To aim the mind, like the fork and the piece of broccoli, which we had for lunch today. I was so happy to see. We aim. Our attention towards what is happening right now. We don't have to worry about what's happened in the past. we don't have to be concerned, we don't have to be rueful about it. we don't have to justify it. And we don't have to anticipate what may happen next, even with the very next breath. It's now, aiming our attention toward this moment's experience. The second is vichara, which is often translated as uh, investigating, which is the uh, translation I used the other week was rubbing. To have your attention rub or connect, be with that object of awareness, like have your mind rub your belly, as I quoted Upandita's translator. The third is rapture, you could say, as is the, the common translation. Um, someone once said to me a more accurate translation of that word is raptness, which I think is right. It's defined as, or, or um, translated as intense interest. When we Aim our attention. We connect. Or we rub the object. There's a quality of interest. We're not holding back. Or we're not kind of half-hearted and looking the other way and wondering what's for lunch, you know. <laughs> but we're quite interested in our experience. And the uh, so I think raptness is probably right. And the um, consequence of that kind of interest often. Uh, is all those physiological changes that happen. People shake, they get goosebumps, you have a feeling sometimes like you're flying in the air or there's this crushing mountain sitting on your neck or all kinds of things happen as as a result of that particular quality of mind. Because somehow bringing all of our energy together the way we do when we're very interested um, seems to liberate some kind of energy in the body and all these if things happen from that. And then there's a, a jhanic factor called happiness. Um, happiness doesn't mean like jumping up and down for joy or, or being giddy, but there's almost like a softness. Uh, sometimes it's called comfort that we experience where We don't feel the weight of reacting all the time, all that abrasiveness of holding on and pushing away and liking and disliking, but we're just there. So it's like a gentleness or or a comfort that happens. Um, It's almost like we recognize we have a sense of belonging in our bodies, in our minds, in our experience. We don't feel estranged as we actually do when we're being judgmental. So we have that kind of comfort. Even if what we're experiencing is not very pleasant, even if it's harsh or um, hard to face, somehow underlying that in the way we face it, there's a sense of ease that can happen. And then the last of the Jonic factors is one-pointedness, where... We are present enough so that we have some sense of stability. We have some sense of strength in our minds. So we're not waiting for something better to happen. We're not kind of sitting around impatiently. We're not comparing what's happened to the past um, or to some expectation. We're there. And that gives us a sense, it's like being centered, really. So sometimes when you hear these different guided meditations, like sit like a mountain, anything can happen. You know, the wind can blow and rainstorms can happen and um, you know, deer can come flitting over the mountain and uh, beautiful flowers can grow. And the mountain sits there. Not disconnected, very connected, but with that kind of, of strength, of stability. That's that state of one-pointedness. So when we talk about the hindrance of sense-desire, grasping, wanting, the actual antidote to that is the sense of steadfastness of mind. Sit like a mountain. Because the problem with desire is not the arising of desire, even the continual arising of desire. The problem with desire is that we go for it, <laughs> and then we go for the next one, and then we go for the next one. So we're constantly just sort of jumping around, wanting this, then wanting that, and maybe wanting more of that, and I'll take a little of that instead. you know. So it's so unsteady, and it's so kind of... Um, Vulnerable. Our minds are so vulnerable to the winds of change. And so in that sense, I think you can feel how having some kind of stability of mind will be an antidote. It doesn't stop the desire from arising by any means. But there is a sense of seeing almost... Almost a kind of dream like nature of the desire. It's much less solid and unyielding and oppressive, much less magnetic in pulling us away. So that's the, the antidote, the jonic factor that's the antidote for that. A particular hindrance of desire. And then there is aversion, anger and fear. And the antidote of that for that is raptness <laughs> or rapture or interest. Because the energetic movement of both anger and fear actually of aversion altogether is is to separate, to disdain or to shrink from, to strike out against what's happening. And we can't take an interest in something, which means being curious about it, learning from it, looking at it, drawing close to it in order to take a look at it. At the same time, we're pushing it away. So the nature of interest, that kind of strong interest, is that it will be the antidote for for aversion. And we experience that. When, uh, as I mentioned in some of my interviews, uh, I was sitting here and my teacher, Menindra, was teaching. And in this case, he was talking about anger. And you know how much aversion we can have for our own anger. He said, this is how you should relate to your anger. It's like you are sitting here And on the front lawn of IMS, this spaceship comes. And these Martians come out of the spaceship. They come up to you and they say, what is anger? He said, that's how you should relate to it. What is this? As though you had to relay to somebody for the very first time. What is this? You know, not it's right or it's wrong or I'm a completely horrible person for experiencing this. I must never tell anybody in any way that I felt this or yes, I'm right. And, you know, first I'm going to do this vengeful act and then that vengeful act. And it's not getting lost in the anger. It's not shunning the anger. It's like, what is this? It's taking an interest in it. That's how we can relate to to all of our experience. And so the aversion we might feel toward certain difficult states can be replaced by that sense of interest. And then that quality of happiness or, or comfort, that sense of relief we have when we realize, I can be with this. I don't have to push it away. I don't have to get lost in it. It's okay. It's okay to just hang out with this. I'm going to be okay. It's said to be the antidote for restlessness. You know, we get into these huge sort of energetic flusters about the past, about the future, and if we can just say, it's okay, I'll experience this, I can be with this energy, and draw upon that sense of comfort that is not dependent on things being a certain way, then that will serve as, as the antidote to the restlessness. It comes from that kind of softness, not fighting and also not extending what is going on. I was once um, here teaching, and uh, one of my co-teachers was uh, a woman named Susan O'Brien, who's sort of part of this community. And um, she was giving a talk, and in the course of the talk, she spoke about a time when she'd been practicing with me as her teacher. And she said she came to me. And this is really a long time ago, many, many years ago, she came to me, she described in this talk, and said to me, has anyone ever died of restlessness? And so I was really interested to hear what I had said. (laughs) So I kind of listened, and she said, and Sharon said, not from one moment at a time of it. (laughs) So I thought, good answer. (laughs) That was good not from one moment at a time of it. So I'd like to quote her quoting me because I had no recollection of this whatsoever. You know, that's what gives us the sense of ease or, or comfort. Okay, I can be with this right now, right now. So when we are filled with sloth and torpor, as I think I've talked about here before, the antidote for that is the sense of aim. It's taking the fork and aiming it right toward that piece of broccoli. Just this one breath. Just this one moment of hearing. Just this step. Just this half a step in the walking. Just Because it only makes sense if we somehow have a more diffuse energy. Okay, I'll be mindful now and through this next hour. That doesn't work. We can only actually be mindful now. And when we, we have that kind of sense of things, then we're very empowered. It's like our minds brighten and there's more energy. And so we'll wake up more. And that is is maybe the first thing we try when we're experiencing a great deal of sluggishness or sloth and torpor, try your aim. See what happens. Just this one breath. And what a relief. You don't have to care about anything else. And then the next breath. Just this one. Then there's that sense of rubbing or vichara or sustained um, application or connection with an object is said to be the antidote to doubt. Because part of doubt is that kind of indecisiveness that has us jump and almost like hovering around what's going on. We can't really settle and feel it. So just to come closer to what is, even if it's a very uncomfortable feeling of uncertainty or anxiety, come close to the actual feeling rub it be with it connect to it and that will settle some of that kind of of jumpiness of doubt so as things tie together very neatly we have five hindrances we have five jhanic factors and how do we develop them I know that there's been a fair amount of confusion about the word concentration because, of course, we use it in many different ways. Sometimes when we say concentration, we really mean um, the quality of steadiness of mind one moment at a time. It's a quality of connection, of stability, It might be developed on pretty much one object. It might be developed on changing objects, as we often do here. But that's the meaning of concentration as a quality. Sometimes when we talk about concentration, we really mean a state. It might be the state of moments of concentration kind of bundled together so that they say that concentration will help eradicate the obsessive hindrances when we are really tormented by repeated greed or anger and we develop more concentration, more stability of mind, we won't be so tormented, we won't be so obsessed by them. Sometimes when we say concentration, we mean a state not so much of stability but of some of the more almost kind of temporary um, effects of, of our energy having come together in that way. So many of the kind of sheer goodies of meditation practice are associated with the power of concentration. You feel an altered state of consciousness. It's exquisite. You feel tremendous quiet or bliss or joy just from the unification of all that energy which is usually flying all over the place. And while a very um powerful and beautiful state in terms of that kind of concentration of those more extraordinary experiences that is what is so very fragile because it will continually change all of the time you know you're sitting here maybe in complete bliss And the fire alarm goes off. And suddenly, you're outside on the lawn, maybe filled with annoyance or or whatever might be happening. It's gone. As a state, as an experience, there's nothing you can hold on to. And so, when we define good practice as those states of concentration... That's when we almost start practicing fear. Oh, no, I've got to, like, keep the fire alarm from going off. Maybe I better dismantle it. You know, it went off yesterday. It ruined my concentration. Or, oh, no, that person's sneezing. Oh, no. You know, why don't they fix the radiators here? They've had the place for almost 30 years. I'm writing a letter to the board of directors writing two letters to the board of directors you know it's like on and on and on and on and that's when our our sense of meditation gets so small and and it's something that isn't protecting us it's something we have to protect and that is that's a very unfortunate sense of being attached to a state of concentration when i was practicing um in my early meditative life in India, not in the very beginning, which was tremendously painful, but as things got better, I just assumed, that, as things felt better is a more accurate way of saying it, I just assumed it was going to be that way forever. I think, oh good, you know, as I sat there filled with bliss or filled with joy, I think, oh good. Imagine living the entire rest of my life just like this. It's going to be wonderful. You know, but what happened? 15 minutes, 20 minutes, my knees started hurting, or I got bored, or I got restless. And every single time I thought, what did I do wrong to ruin this state? Did I breathe too hard? Did I squeeze my eyes shut too tight? Did I lean over a little to the left? You know, what went wrong to ruin that state? But of course, it wasn't that anything had gone wrong or had done anything so terrible to ruin the state. It changed because everything changes all of the time. And that's not to say we don't enjoy or treasure even those beautiful states of concentration, but we can rely on something deeper, which is our relationship our free and open relationship to what is happening rather than holding on and then being so resentful when life just happens. Because guess what? Life always happens in some way or another. And then we talk about concentration actually as a whole um, kind of stream of practice It's not that in concentration practices concentration is the only thing that gets developed, but it is like the foundation quality. It's the pivotal quality. One of the ways you can discern a concentration practice or or a practice that's relying mostly on the development of concentration is the question of what you do when your attention leaves that object of concentration. Uh, If you're object of concentration is a meta phrase, for example, a series of meta phrases, and your mind goes somewhere else, because it is a primarily considered a concentration practice, what you want to do is let go of that distraction as quickly as possible and bring your attention back. There's not really kind of an interest in seeing its changing nature in exploring its dimensions to notice that it's not just anger, it's also sadness, it's also fear. The practice is really about letting go as quickly as you can, gently, you know, with intelligence, not with anger, but as quickly as you can to let go and bring your attention back to that primary object. And then there are practices, of course, as we do... uh, Often here, where we have a primary object, say the breath, but when something comes up that's strong enough to take us away from the breath, we're with it for at least a little while, and then we come back. And then something else comes up, and we're with it, and then we come back. So there's almost a kind of um, equality of view And because that kind of mindfulness practice, where you may be with many different objects, not just one, gives us uh, such a doorway into seeing the changing nature of things. It brings its own kind of freedom from the defilements or hindrances, not so much freedom from their obsessive quality, Um but freedom from their deluding quality. It's like when we're filled with desire and there's that um, latent promise within it that if only we had whatever, we would be finally perfectly, completely happy with no change ever anymore. We know (laughs) that that's not so. And so it's not so utterly beguiling. And also the state itself is seen and known to be impermanent. When a very strong desire rises or anger, it feels like it's going to be forever. But because we have seen that everything changes, we don't have that sense of, of such solidity or substantiality. We're working in those kinds of practices like based primarily on mindfulness. With that openness to change, that recognition of constant movement and flow, we're seeing that we're not in control, that no matter how fervently we've decided, I'll never fall asleep while meditating again. Sometimes we fall asleep while meditating again. We're tired, you know, or it's hot or something. Some conditions have come together for sleepiness to arise. And so it's there. That's an insight. That's really the the way that that practice frees us is by giving us continual access to deeper truths about our experience. And the way it is really most powerfully done, a mindfulness practice, is through a kind of continuity. Not that we will be absolutely perfectly continuous all of the time, but we are aiming our minds toward a true connection with our experience just as it is no matter what we're doing. I've told several of you um, in, in the interviews and some of you have heard me speak before about that very famous retreat with Sayadaw Upandita in 1984 where uh, you know he came here and we began sitting for three months um, the next day. And we were very strictly keeping the silence So, I didn't realize that Sido was actually working quite individually with people. Um, And as I think Joseph mentioned in some talk, you know, the way he was working with me was by having me slow down really a lot and use every experience as a kind of meditation. And I didn't know that. I thought he was telling everybody to slow down, and I was the only one listening to him. You know, and I used to see these friends like Joseph, like zipping by, you know, I think, what's he doing, you know? Like, why isn't he slowing down the way he's supposed to? And then there were things like, um, uh, Saito taught, as is is often taught, three-part or three-speed walking, where, say, you're walking for 45 minutes, you spend the first 15 maybe walking quite quickly um, so that you can just note, touch, 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 touch. And then you spend the next 15 slowing down somewhat so you can lift, place. And then you only spend the last 15 really walking slowly so that you can out lifting, moving, placing. And, and he never taught me that. You know, I was just, I used to, he was doing interviews up in M101 and sometimes it would take me 10 minutes to walk down that corridor and get to the room and he would just look up and say, You're moving too fast. <laughs> and that'd be it. That was my interview. And I'd just kind of turn around, and slowly make my way back down the corridor, you know. And I used to look at Joseph doing his three part walking and think, What's he dashing about for, you know? Like, and then at the end of the retreat, somebody said to me, How did you like three part walking? And I said, What's that, you know? So he was working very individually with everybody. And, His emphasis with me, absolutely, was on the continuity of my awareness, of my mindfulness. We were seeing him six days a week for interviews, and we were supposed to describe one sitting and one walking from the previous 24 hours. So, as many people did, I started taking notes at the end of say, one sitting and one walking. Very simple notes, like this is where I was with the breath, this is what I felt, this is what happened to my body, this is what happened in my mood. Um, so I would go in there to M101 with my piece of paper, with my sitting and my walking described on it, and before I could read it, he'd look up and say, tell me everything you noticed when you washed your face, which was Nothing. So I'd leave. That was my interview. And I'd sit as mindfully as I could, and I'd walk as mindfully as I could, and I'd wash my face as mindfully as I could. I'd feel my hands in the water. I'd feel the water on my face. I'd come in the next day, and he'd say, tell me everything you noticed when you took off your shoes, which was nothing, and I'd leave. (laughs) And I'd sit as mindfully as I could, and I'd walk as mindfully as I could, and I'd wash my face as mindfully as I could, and I'd take off my shoes as mindfully as I could, and I'd come in the next day, and he'd say, tell me everything you noticed when you opened the door, which was nothing. <laughs> but when I left, <laughs> I felt the coldness and the hardness of the doorknob and the turning movement and the whole thing. So I quickly saw where things were going. Um, LAUGHTER And in my mind, I called it the torment of continuity. I thought, oh, no, you know, what a horrible ordeal this is going to (laughs) be. But the actual experience of it was really great in a number of different ways. First of all, it was fun, you know, to actually feel the coldness and the hardness of the doorknob. And why be unconscious, you know, to just kind of wake up and feel, feel my hands in the water. It was also very good because so many of us, and I was in that state um, somewhat at that time, so many of us feel that the real thing happens here in the meditation hall and everything else, and walking is secondary and everything else is like nothing. But I came to a great appreciation of how everything was as important as anything else. Because it was all about being as mindful as I could, as connected as I could to that moment's experience. So as normally, you know, we might be sitting in the dining room, say, having a cup of tea, and we get lost in some incredibly long fantasy. And then when we realize that, we have the impulse to sort of like jump up and run to the dishwasher and throw our cup there and run back into the hall to regroup, to reconnect. But instead, I had to start again right there because he might be asking me about drinking a cup of tea rather than my sitting. It was weeks before I got to report a sitting or a walking. And he also introduced a very um, strong sense of kind of the immediacy and the power of only needing to develop mindfulness If we're relying on those great states of concentration as a sort of badge of triumph, you know, you kind of want to sit and get one so you could go describe it, not drink your cup of tea mindfully or wash your face mindfully. But if everything is kind of an even playing field and there's nothing about having a great experience that's so important, then you can't bring devotion and attention to everything that you're doing. He said to me once, if you do like a major physical movement, like say you're sitting down in the dining room, having finished eating, and you stand up without having left time to notice the intention to stand, he said, sit down again and do it over. Sit down, notice the intention to stand, And then stand up. And I thought, you're right, that's what I'm gonna do in the dining room. (laughs) It's like, stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. But there was something so great about it, because I thought, who cares, you know, on one hand? That's what I'm here for. There's no special experience I'm supposed to be having, and if I look kind of stupid, I look kind of stupid. It's like an exploration or an adventure. In fact, once I was I was doing walking meditation outside behind somebody on that retreat, and they stopped, and they took a step backwards, and they took a step forward, and they stopped again, took a step backward, and took a step forward. And I was thinking, could you please note the intention? <laughs> Finally, rather than doing this over and over again, because we have to get on here, you know, uh, and keep moving, but it's fun. There's nothing else we have to do but work with connecting to our experience as completely as we can, as continuously as we can. And when we lose it and we are swept away, we're just gone, we start over right where we are. It's not like remedial work that needs to be done or ground that's been lost. We have to cultivate that ability to begin again right where we are. So whether we're working to develop both mindfulness and each of these jhanic factors through a kind of particular devotion to concentration practice, like through metta um, or any of the brahmaviharas, or we are working through the powerful continuity of mindfulness through all activity, They can support one another. They can really help sustain one another when we have a good understanding of of actually what we're doing. So let's sit together for a few minutes.